You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Multi-generational housing. It's not a new concept, but one that is not without challenges. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us with The Long View this morning. Happy New Year, Neil. Thank you. Same to you <laughs> and everybody else. Yes. And you just shared with me that you grew up in a multi-generational home. Yes, I grew up in a multi-generational home, up and down with my grandparents. Um, and actually, my wife grew up in a multi-generational home, a big home. And the difference is, we. when I think about it now, it was a totally unselfconscious multi-generational home. They, My grandparents worked on their own. They were immigrants. Um, they didn't depend on us. We didn't depend on them. They weren't generators of economic uh, resources in any kind of way. They were just there. I don't remember much else about them in in that kind of sense that we're now going to talk about it. Now it's become much more trendy, uh, even though it's been around for a long time. And it's become in some ways much more fraught because of what it's like and because of the people who are getting involved. But this is a piece by, it's in a magazine, a Canadian magazine that I've talked about before called Walrus, as in a walrus. And it's a piece by a a writer and novelist from Vancouver called Kevin Chong. And the title of it says pretty much what it's all about. Title of it is, Multi-Generational Living Often Makes Sense, That Doesn't Make It Easy. He's the first person, uh, he's a participant in this because he moved in with his wife and daughter into his old house, his mother's house. Um, That's kind of an up and down. Moved in there to essentially help her pay a very large mortgage that she took many years ago. They were immigrants. They made some money and so on. But in exchange, you get the usual kinds of help, but you also get the usual kinds of difficulties. And what Chong is trying to get across to you is not that it's not that it's good, not that it's bad. It's it's definitely on the increase, uh, a 50% increase in Canada over a short period of time. Vancouver, where this takes place, is the most expensive city for housing in Canada. So in a sense, it's the same way, and people have the same reason for moving in as and or staying together in a multi-generational family as they do here. I've always been interested in the fact that most of the time when you hear about multi-generational living here, you hear maybe something called crowding, and then you hear this sort of cultural discussion of saying the strength of the ohana, that they want to all live together. It's more complicated than that. I think we have to look more closely at Hawaii. And some of what you get is some of the complications that Chong that Chong says. And Chong makes it very clear. I love my mother. We've gone through a lot together. She can be a piece of work, which she did can be. And in a sense, he says, I can be a piece of work. But I, I want to get across what it's like. And so let's just talk about a couple of things, one of which is stigma. As more people move into multi generational uh, situations, in, in a sense, moving back with their parents and in laws, there is a sense of we didn't make it on our own or we're depending on our parents. And Chong talks about the fact that when he takes his mother to the doctor and um, she'll say that the, uh, his mother will say, well, the, he's, he's living with me. And they all, he'll always say, well, but I have a family there, that sort of thing. The, but the other things that he's – and you really ought to read this piece. It's, it's very rich. Um, he tries not to complain too much, and I think he succeeds. There are boundary issues, interpersonal issues about boundaries, and I want to play one minute of an Everybody Loves Raymond episode, <laughs> yes. which is one of my favorite family shows. I still watch it. So let's listen to about a minute of that right now. All right. We've had, in the past, we've had our share of tiffs, but I truly believe it's because you misunderstand me. I I am not interested in a relationship of artificial pleasantries and and phony smiles. You never, ever have to pretend with me. I'm always honest with you, aren't I? And if I see something that you desperately need help with, like cooking, (laughs) cleaning, (laughs) the children, your hair. I, I care so much that I have to say something because I want to help. Oh, honey, you don't have to be worried, dear. 
I forgive you for today. <laughs> and I'm always here to help. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yes, that's the mother-in-law. That's uh, Ray's mother talking to Ray's wife. And although they don't live in literally the same, they live essentially next door and uh, Chong says you can kind of count that as multi-generational living there's some differences as there was in my house upstairs and downstairs you get some space but I think what what Chong is trying to illustrate is these kinds of boundary issues that has to be worked out it isn't simply you're not doing your chores um, and it takes a long time to be able to deal with those sorts of things they don't come they don't come naturally and in a crowded house they're more likely to come and the difference between well-intentioned advice and angering people is is pretty blurred and he talks a lot about that sort of thing the other thing that he talks about is the sort of love-hate relationships that develop his mother who was just 71 goes through a, a pretty um, limiting period in regard to her health and so he becomes more involved in taking to her a doctor uh, in doing certain things for her and it's a lot of work as anybody who's ever done it does um, and he gets used to that he's he's more or less f fine with that but they still go back to some of the same old interpersonal disputes that they had when they were when they were younger. Um, she used, I mean, he's. Just say one other thing. She took a second mortgage on the house to send Chung, her son, to Columbia for a master's degree, which, in a sense, catapulted him forward as a writer. By the same token. She used to use the word stupid against his, him and his brother all the time. And she started using it again. And he said, don't use the word stupid. I'm not stupid, and my brother is not stupid. Those are little things, but those things can, can really eat away with you. When you oh, have to yeah, navigating yeah. that family Oh, navigating dynamic. that stuff and, and, and that kind of language. She actually recovers. Hell, she's still on dialysis, but she's a pretty tough, independent woman and does her share of, of the uh, babysitting for the daughter and his driving again and so on. But it's those kinds of things that um, can really drive a family to distraction. And Chong points out that at the same time there's been more increase in multi-generational housing, there's also been more increase in elder abuse. Um, it, you know, it's not a direct causal relationship, but it's pretty hard to be in these kinds of situations. Here's the interesting thing that he doesn't make explicit though. Part of it is about wealth and choice. Um, his, his mother owned a house. It's not a fancy house, um, but it's an, it's an expensive house that uh, by, because everything's expensive there. But that gave her the space available for him. The other thing is that he could argue from the standpoint of choice that he sometimes wonders if he made a good choice here. There are lots of people who really don't have any choice at all. They, they do it because they have to do it. That doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it work. And it also helps to explain another reason why people move from here. They move for space. They move for opportunities. But they also move from the fraught relationships that you can get into when you have to live this way. Yeah. I mean, it's hard when you uh, are treated like a child, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's hard for the mother when she's treated like some kind of which at times yeah. they have yeah. this interesting apology at, he writes a letter of apology and he says you know th things are working okay but still i still wonder if it was the good choice yeah interesting all right well thank you so much neil you're welcome take care and that was neil milner our contributing editor of the long view we'll have links to the articles and video he mentioned on the conversa conversation page of our website after the show <laughs> This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, 
Oniihau Ukawai Oahu Umulokai Ulanai Umau Ukahoolabe Uhavai Today we're visiting a Lanai Trail located where rainforests, island lore, red dirt, and beautiful vistas are all on the agenda. The entire circuitous trek measures 12.8 miles and is accessible by foot or bike, although some adventurers opt for getting around on a four-wheel drive vehicle instead. One of the highlights of this hike is the Mauna Lake Gulch Lookout. In 1778, island warriors made their last stand there against invading Big Island forces led by Chief Kalani Opu. He laid uh, siege and they were starved out and the Big Island Army took over the entire island. Further up the trail, lofty cook pines planted in the early 1900s trap water from the crowds, clouds that crown the mountain ridges. And once you arrive at the 3,300-foot summit called Lanai Hale, the trail offers a spectacular vista of six Hawaiian islands. If the day is clear enough, of course. So for today's backyard quiz, can you name this Lanai Trail and tell us who it's named for? Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NairitHawaii.com. On January 1st, Hawaii became the latest state to enact a pay transparency law. Colorado, California, New York, and other jurisdictions already have laws requiring employers to include salary ranges or hourly rates in their job postings. Uh, Helena uh, Alameda is the vice president of managing counsel at the global human resources company ADP. She spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about this growing trend and what it means for local companies. And basically, when we're talking about pay transparency and the job posting, um, it's different variations on making the employer have an obligation to either proactively tell candidates about um, a salary range for a position um, or give employees the right to ask an employer what the pay range is for their position. So there's different flavors of this law. It's covering, you know, 20, 25 percent of of the nation's labor force at this point. Um, We have Colorado, New York State, soon Illinois, California, Rhode Island. There's jurisdictions um, in pockets in Ohio and in New Jersey. So there's a growing number of places that have this sort of job posting requirement. Hawaii's requirement is that employers with 50 or more employees have to disclose in their job listings an hourly rate or salary range that reasonably reflects what they intend to pay for that position. And that's similar to a number of the other jurisdictions that have passed this law. Some states will have a requirement that reaches employers as small as four or five employees, right? So Hawaii starting with um, somewhat bigger companies with the 50 employees, but essentially it, it is very similar to the laws in other states. It has a proactive requirement. So this isn't Hawaii doesn't have the kind of law where an employee has the right to ask about a salary range. Employers above 50, with some exceptions, um, are required to actually post to include the number in a job posting um, so that anybody who wants to apply to the job, anybody who's looking at the company will see those salary ranges and be able to compare across competitors. What are the main issues that employees should know about as we head into this year? There's a couple of things that we recommend that employers think about um, when they're um, either required to or choosing to include salary ranges in their job postings. Um, for a lot of employers, and particularly smaller employers, they actually need to to start with step number one is making sure that they actually have a salary range for their for their jobs. 
this might require an employer to look at their job descriptions um, and, and job titles and really determine whether positions that have the same title actually are the same, right? Because if you have um, jobs that have the same title but vastly different responsibilities, it'll make it hard to have a salary range that makes sense for that position. We recommend the employers look at their compensation decisions and how they're made. So what factors go into pay? Do they consider performance or tenure or geography? You want to make sure that these there's a philosophy of, of compensation decisions that is clear and understood. We also recommend that employers review their current pay, so their internal pay equity, which essentially means are people who are in that position and doing that job right now, um, where do they fall in that range that you intend to post for a particular open position? Of course, once you post the range, employees, you know, your current employees are going to um, see the information and you want to understand where your current employees fall in that range. Now for employees, this is an, part of a growing trend in shifting the information imbalance from employers who used to have all of the information about um, pay to employees. And by growing trend, I would, I would talk about, and Hawaii has a number of these laws, but it used to be that employers could freely ask um, uh, candidates for positions what they're asked prior salary history is, right? And they would be able to use that information in making their offer of new salary. Many states, including Hawaii, have now prohibited employers from doing that. So the information that used to be in the employer's hands is now being transferred to the employees. And employees um, now can kind of review competitors and look at information across potential opportunities to see um, what best meets the compensation requirements that they have. I was looking at some of the bill and some of the testimony that came in from like Society of Human Resources of Hawaii and Retail Merchants of Hawaii. They warned that there would be fewer applicants for employers because some of these competitive advantages were taken away and also some jealousy with current employees seeing the salaries that were being offered for new employees. So have you seen fewer applying, fewer people applying for jobs where this law has been enacted? So... It is early in um, a lot of these states experience with with these laws. And there's a lot that we're gonna learn, I think in the next um, few months and years in, in terms of how these pay transparency laws are impacting um, all aspects of the recruiting and hiring process. I've heard anecdotally that applicants are, are demanding transparency and in fact, aren't applying to jobs that don't list a salary range or a reasonable salary range in the posting. So it's actually a little bit of an unexpected bonus to companies who are posting salary ranges um, publicly because employee candidates and job seekers are staying away from those positions that don't have a salary range posted because they're interested in transparency and want to work for a company that um, is, is, promoting a culture of transparency by including the pay ranges. On the flip side, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of recruiters and HR professionals have been saying is that a reduction in the number of people applying for a particular job may actually be a good and efficient thing in the long run, because if, it, if a job seeker is looking at a job posting and the job posting includes a salary range that is just not on the same page and not what uh, the job seeker is looking for, then um, they don't apply. And it, it, you know, recruiters are saying that that, that could be a more efficient way for um, employers and employees to make the right decision and make the right fit. I encourage employers to look at total compensation when they're um, doing their job posting. They have to post a reasonable salary range, right? But um, job seekers might also be interested in hearing other things about the total compensation package that the employer um, is offering and what makes the employer unique in terms of um, additional training opportunities or um, flexibility in hours or location. In a theoretical situation, say there's an employer and they post a job listing and an employee with a similar job complains to management that, you know, I'm not getting paid as much as this new hire. What advice would you give to the employer? That's a, that's absolutely a real issue. I think when companies started going into the pay transparency world, a lot of a lot of them felt that 
it was a post it and forget it, like a post the range. And, and that was the, that was compliance. But really what these pay transparency laws do is they, um, they end up requiring a culture shift um, to some extent at employers. Employers have to be prepared for that kind of difficult conversation with their current employees. They have to be prepared to um, address employee concerns about why they're below the range um, that's posted in, in um, on a job board or um, why they're near the bottom of the range. There are justified reasons for paying somebody differently, paying people differently in the same role, you know, tenure, uh, experience, performance. Employers need to make sure that their HR professionals, their recruiters, their managers are comfortable enough discussing this with employees. So when those challenging conversations happen and an employee says, wait a minute, I, you know, I'm, um, you know, a lead engineer for for you. And I just saw you have a posting on a job board for a lead engineer. And I'm, um, you know, I'm at the bottom of that range. Employers should make sure that their managers are trained to under to explain that to the employee, to have that conversation with the employee. And we, you know, we do recommend that before posting a range, you think about how your current employees compare. And if if you've set a job range for a salary range for a particular position and your current employees are, you know, at the low end of that, and you don't believe that there's a justification for that, consider the employer should consider um, whether there's a, an, an increase warranted for that particular individual. This law only applies to companies with 50 or more employees. So what about companies under that range? Do you recommend that they should consider this? So we've seen, um, in California, the job posting requirement was initially for um, larger companies and the requirement now applies to smaller um, to smaller employees. It was expanded. In New York's requirement applies to companies with as few as four, um, four or five employees in New York. I think um, it is a trend that's, that's growing and becoming um, and requirements impacting smaller employers are becoming more and more prevalent. So one reason for a smaller employer um, who isn't covered by the Hawaii law to uh, consider adopting pay transparency, um, even though it's not required. And we have um, heard from job seekers who are beginning to expect uh, transparency from their employer. So it, you know, there is an advantage um, potentially in being transparent and candidates, um, you know, understanding that a particular employer has a transparent philosophy when it comes to compensation. So those are our uh, potential benefits for um, pay transparency. That was a he Helena Alameda of HR and payroll company ADP. The legislation to require pay transparency also included amendments to Hawaii's Equal Pay Act. Previously, only pay discrimination based on sex was pre uh, protected. Now, sexual orientation, ancestry, uh, marital status, and more are all protected classes against pay discrimination. On the next Fresh Air, Paul Giamatti, he just won a Golden Globe for starring in The Holdovers as a pompous and disliked teacher at a boys' boarding school in the 70s. He's assigned to take care of a boy who has nowhere to go over the winter holiday. The Holdovers is directed by Alexander Payne, whose film Sideways also starred Giamatti. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. The 2024 legislative session opens in a week, but lawmakers have already been busy in budget briefings. HPR reporter Kuve Hiraishi joins us to talk about the wish list for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. 
Good morning, Kuve. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands Director Kali Watson told lawmakers Tuesday that the agency's plan could remove more than 6,000 Native Hawaiians from the growing waiting list, but that plan will require additional funding. Uh, Watson took over at DHHL in March of, of last year, sort of midway through the legislative session and several months after the legislature passed Act 279, which uh, we'll be hearing a lot about this session, but uh, this particular act appropriated $600 million to DHHL with the goal of drastically and aggressively reducing the waiting list, which at this point is a little over 29,000 uh, individuals long. Uh, DHHL has 28 projects that uh, Watson shared with legislators that it intends to pursue with this $600 million. Uh, but Watson says these projects could remove over 6,000 people from that waiting list. But in some of these projects, uh, DHHL is acquiring new land that will require that additional funding to develop. Uh, that $600 million is totally used under these 28 projects. Phase two, which is dependent upon additional funding from the legislature that involved over 600 million. So I, I know that, uh, you know, it's very unlikely we'll get 600 million from you folks this year or this uh, buying, but I, th I think it's important that you see that, you know, we're, we're not just talking about use of money and that it ends there. It's really a matter of where, where do we go in the future? Yes, and we heard Kali talk about this when we interviewed him when he first got the post. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's returning to DHHL because, you know, he used to be there. And, uh, yeah, I think folks wanted to know that, you know, they were going to hit the ground running. Right. And, and there, you know, it's no surprise that they're coming back, DHHL is, to the legislature and saying, okay, we've got some... Uh, projects in the works, but to, to fully build out all of these, you know, if we acquire new land, develop it, build homes, and then get that uh, financing that needs to be done to help the, the homeowners move on to those uh, lots, that's going to take time. Uh, but much of the legislature's focus this session will be on this $600 million. How is DHHL spending it, and how will this reduce the waiting list? The department is also facing a June 30th deadline to encumber the $600 million. And that was a concern for Maui Senator Troy Hashimoto. Uh, Hashimoto served as chair of the House Oversight Committee for DHHL's implementation of Act 279. Uh, DHHL has so far requested the release of about one third. So it's got uh, two thirds just waiting. Uh, Hashimoto is asking for DHHL's plans to encumber the remainder by that deadline. I'm just trying to get ballpark numbers, right? So at least we can anticipate, okay, have you hit your milestone? And if you haven't, we got to make sure that, you know, we're going and making sure we get your extension for you. That That's my my biggest concern. Because I, I think the more that you say, oh, we got it under control, we got it under control. And then, no, no, you know, con contracts take a while, you know, exactly. to encumber, right? And so we just right. don't want to give our colleagues a false sense of that. I agree. With you. you know, we, agree. we don't need the extension, but we actually do, right? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is we want to see people get housing that they've been waiting for. Exactly, and that uh, appears to be what uh, the department is sort of aggressively working towards. Uh, the Native Hawaiian Le Legislative Caucus introduced a bill last year that would, among other things, grant that one-year extension to DHHL for the Act 279 uh, funding. Uh, those bills uh, were carried over to this session, so we will see that. And of, of course, uh, the department is also requesting $20 million in general funds for wildfire response, recovery, and prevention. The agency says it did not have a, a plan when the West Maui fires hit last August, and so uh, that fire destroyed two Hawaiian homestead lots in the villages of Leali'i. Uh, so that plan is uh, up for uh, looking for some funding from the legislature this year. Yes, the Maui wildfires is going to be a different lens that is applied to a lot of uh, projects this year. Uh, and But we were fortunate, the DHHL was fortunate in that, uh, you know, the damage was limited to just those two lots. Exactly. And I think that preventative uh, measure in trying to get uh, wildfire prevention done across the Hawaiian Islands, 200,000 acres for DHHL is really uh, top of mind.
Yes, if I recall, I think Kali was talking about, yeah, the fire-resistant materials, right, that are required. I mean, that's key. And, uh, again, fortunate that uh, uh, more uh, of of those units weren't uh, damaged or destroyed. Exactly. And more attention paid to that this uh, coming session. Uh, The department will be figuring out what to do with the remainder of that $600 but fire prevention is also on the agenda. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, Kali's right and they can encumber all those funds and they don't need that extension. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was a reporter, uh, Kuvehi Reishi, who is tracking Hawaiian issues at the legislature. This weekend marks the third year the Daughters of Hawaii are throwing a party under the theme Mu'u at the Museum. It's a fundraiser to help the organization with its mission to care for three historic properties, the Queen Emma Summer Palace, Hulie'e Palace uh, on the Big Island, and Kamehameha III's birthplace. The theme this year is East Meets West in a nod to the Great Chinese Merchants Ball of 1856, one of the many events organized to celebrate the wedding of Queen Emma and King Kamehameha IV. We talked to Alexa Zen, co-chair of the Saturday event, about what's in store at the Summer Palace in Nuuanu. So what I love is that there is actually a personal connection to Queen Emma. So when she had her wedding to Alexander Liholiho, Kamehameha IV, the entire kingdom celebrated. They got married in the summer, and then I guess in the months following, different groups of people were holding wedding balls and parties for the royal couple, and the greatest or the grandest party of all was put together by an association of Chinese merchants. They wanted to establish themselves and prove themselves in Hawaii society. So they got together and threw the royal couple a very elaborate ball. And uh, we, at the Daughters, we read about that in books and we learned about it from you know other uh, people who have researched this historic event, and we decided to draw our inspiration from that wedding ball for this year's fundraiser. Yeah, I I was reading the uh, notes from the Hawaiian Journal of History about, oh gosh, they had like 150 chickens, and uh, they roasted sheep, and it was just (laughs) quite an affair. Yes, yes. Anyone who was anyone was trying to get an invitation to this wedding ball. And so this then is the inspiration for this event this weekend. What is in store for that evening? So this evening uh, is following the format that we've used in the past. We're going to be having live music and entertainment. The the food is going to be catered. There will be heavy poo-poo served. We're going to have the palace open for self-guided tours. There are going to be some wonderful local and Hawaiian vendors in the hale for our pop-up makeke. And there's, of course, going to be our favorite Mu'umu'u contest where we encourage all of our guests to dress up in their finest, you know, men and women alike. There's going to be several mystery judges mingling among the crowd. <laughs> I and love it. At the end of the night, we're going to be honoring and celebrating the best dressed in several categories. The categories are uh, the best dressed in the theme of East Meets West, best aloha attire, best group costume. And then, of course, the People's Choice Award, where uh, the guests get to choose for themselves who they thought looked the most fabulous that evening. Well, it sounds like a a really fun affair. And, and, uh, you know, in reading the details of that original ball, you know, there was all this elaborate decoration with dragons. And, uh, you know, I think this Chinese New Year, we celebrate the Year of the Dragon. And uh, so it's, it's fitting. Yes, and um, I just wanted to point out, too, that even though we're leaning into the historic aspect of it, which happened to involve Chinese merchants, of course, for this Saturday, we welcome all types of fashion and um, Asian influences. So it doesn't just need to be um, honoring Chinese culture. Right. All so- aspects and cultures of Asia, we welcome 
And so, yeah, you can wear your uh, your newest mu'u <laughs> or holoku uh, just to kind of get in the, the theme of the event. Yes, I'm really interested and excited to see how guests are going to interpret the theme for this year. I think it's going to be um, very interesting. This is a fundraiser, and so where do the proceeds go? Yes, so as always, this, this fundraiser um, goes to support the historic preservation, maintenance, and operation of the palace. And we're so pleased to, to bring it back. I mean, this, is, this was a new project for us starting three years ago, but this is turning out to be one of our premier annual fundraisers. Uh, we appreciate everyone's support, everyone who can come down. We hope to see you guys there. And this marks Queen Emma's 188th birthday. Yes, that's correct. Uh, her birthday was earlier this month on uh, January 2nd. So it's nice that we do that this in honor of her birthday as well. Okay, and then you folks also take care of the palace there on the Big Island, Kona. Yes, that's correct. So the daughters are actually caretakers of three historic sites. Hanaya Kamalama here uh, on Oahu, the Queen and the Summer Palace, Kulihe'e Palace in Kona, and then also the birth site of Kawikeoli, which is located in Keoho Bay, right next to Kona. Okay, and so you, you folks will have events uh, there uh, later this year. Yes, um, we will be releasing information soon, possibly as soon as next week, but we are also hoping to have an event coinciding with Mu'umu'u Month uh, later on this month, located in Kona at Hulihe'e Palace. Okay, all right. Well, uh, folks can mark their calendars, uh, but yeah, this weekend is is the event here uh, on Oahu. Yes, that's correct. Oh. at the museum. Okay. Um, uh, anything else you want to add just about this um fundraising event, fundraising gala? Sure. Well, I've noticed that um, as I'm seeing people purchase tickets online, um, we're seeing a lot of repeat guests. This is the third year that some guests, third year in a row that some guests are coming back out to support us. So every single year we try to do something a little new, a little different, um, keep it educational and informative and interactive and um Again, I, I, I just, we're just so appreciative of the people who keep coming back to support the palace. And we really think that there's something new that we have to offer every single year. So there's always a reason to come out and support us year after year at this annual fundraiser. That was the Daughters of Hawaii's Alexis Zen, co-chair of the Saturday event, Mu'u at the Museum, to celebrate Queen Emma's birthday. Uh, the event was inspired by the ball in 1856, organized by a group of Cantonese businesses who celebrated the wedding of the Queen to King Kamehameha IV. Uh, tickets are still available, and we'll have links on our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater. Opera Aloha celebrates the power and beauty of opera and features artists from around the world, January 14th at 3 p.m. In-person or on-demand tickets at kahilu.org. People in Copaque, New York say they support green energy. We are not climate deniers, nor are we nimbyists. But when a developer wanted to install thousands of solar panels, people in town were up in arms. Most people in this community just want this thing to go away. Rural America pushes back on solar projects on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring lead certification services. GreenBuildingHawaii.com We now go to this week's Manu Minute. Today's spotlight is one of the most common songbirds in the islands, the house finch. The introduced species sings a long, warbling song that you've probably heard plenty of times, especially if you live on the leeward side of our islands. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. 
The house finch was first introduced to Oahu around 1870 and soon spread to all the other Hawaiian islands. It is now one of our most widely distributed birds. It can be commonly found at sea level on all the main Hawaiian islands, then mauka through pastures, woodlands, and wet forests, all the way up to subalpine forests above 9,000 feet elevation on Maui and Hawaii. Some people in Hawaii call them papaya birds, or manuai mikana, because of their habit of eating soft fruits such as papaya in backyards and orchards, but they also love insects, as well as seeds of all kinds, and can be commonly found at bird feeders. They're about five inches long from bill to tail and are sexually dimorphic, meaning males and females look very different. While both sexes are mainly brown with pale streaks, the males have a head and chest that ranges in color from yellow-orange to bright red, with the color dependent on the level of carotenoid pigments they get in their food. House finch song has been described as a sweet warble and can be heard throughout the year in Hawaii. Songs are generally sung by the males, either to attract females or as a form of aggression directed at other males. They can sing while they're perched and even while they're flying. House finch calls, on the other hand, are a rather nasally cheap and are given by both males and females when they're foraging to let each other know where they are. House finch are one of the most common and widely distributed birds across North America. Until recently, they were thought to be the closest living relative to our native Hawaiian honeycreepers. Recent molecular evidence, though, indicates that this distinction now belongs to the closely related rose finch, which is only found in Eurasia. About 7 million years ago, a small flock of these rose finch somehow crossed more than 2,500 miles of ocean landed in what we now call Hawaii, and evolved into our more than 56 species of honeycreepers, many of which, though, have unfortunately gone extinct. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering nature tours on Hawaii Island with adventures including swimming in private waterfalls, Mauna Kea stargazing, and exploring active volcanoes. More at hawaii-forest.com. Now it's time to trek through to our backyard's backyard quiz answer. Earlier we told you about a popular adventure on Lanai that takes at least two hours by vehicle, but you can also walk or bike the 12.8-mile trail. One of the highlights is a rainforest of ohia lehua, eucalyptus, ironwood, and pine trees at the halfway point. At the Lanai Hale Summit, which looms well over 3,300 feet, you're rewarded with wide views of the Manalei Gulch, and if the day is clear enough, visitors may even get a glimpse of six other Hawaiian islands. And if you're still wondering what natural attraction we're talking about, it's the one-lane Monroe Trail, named for George Monroe, which are the answers to today's backyard quiz. Monroe is a New Zealand naturalist who arrived in 1890 and who managed the Lanai Ranch. Monroe is also known for planting thousands of pine trees across the island to help restore the land made barren by ranching and pineapple farming. And our winner today, Brendan from Kailua, he got it right. That's today's Backyard Quiz. If you have an idea for one that you would like to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, a 13-year-old Oklahoma boy became the first person believed to ever beat the classic video game Tetris. 
Willis Gibson, known to the gaming world as Blue Scooty, was able to reach level 157, also known as the kill screen. It's a point in the game where it becomes unplayable because of limitations with the 34-year-old game's original programming. The game was invented in uh, 1985 by Russian video game designer Alexei uh, Petronov and released in the U.S. in 1989 after it was brought to our country by entrepreneur and Hawaii resident Hank Rogers. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked to Rogers yesterday about the milestone. Did you have a speech prepared or, or did you ever think that the day would come when somebody would achieve that milestone? Uh, I t- totally didn't have a speech prepared. And, you know, it's not about him beating the high score. He um, basically got the program to run out of memory. You know, I, I mean, back then, programs were made in 64K and the ROM only had so much space. And so they didn't have, you know, room for all of the extra data. Nobody in test play went past level 20 something, but that was possible. So it was somewhere where nobody had tested before. So it caused a bug to happen that wasn't found in test play. What was your conversation with Alexi like after you both got the news? Alexi's thought is, you know, that the game does not end. There is no ending to the game and the way he designed it. And so it should have just been looping and looping on the last level, whatever the highest level was. And that's what you do normally. But this somehow, they let it go to higher levels that weren't planned. You know... What this kid did, Blue Scooty is what he's called, mm-hmm. Blue Scooty did, is first of all, it's an amazing achievement. I mean, it's it's like a tremendous amount of perseverance, determination for him to get to where he ended up getting to. And it wasn't just him. It was a whole group of kids that fed off each other. They were all doing it at the same, about the same time. In fact, there was another kid who did it the next day. It was, you know, kind of a teamwork. And that's, you know, shows... The younger generation showing, you know, determination. To me, it's that determination that we need to solve climate change. That's what I was thinking as well. And you had you mentioned know, that we, in your interviews. But yeah, the kind of determination that they exhibit and the the skill set that they have. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of hope that gives you to help solve climate oh, change? Yeah, you know, like if a bunch of kids can beat Tetris, we can beat climate change. In fact, I think beating climate change is easier than what they accomplished in some ways. So, you know, I like the concept that there ain't nothing we can't do. You know, that comes from the 101st Airborne. Uh, This is 2023. There is absolutely nothing that we can't do. Just got to get, you know, get off our our lazy-ass chair (laughs) and do something about it. Yeah, I imagine reversing climate change, solving climate change, probably takes less speed and dexterity than it does to to play Tetris as well, right? You know, like what they showed was like an an incredible amount of skill and perseverance. I mean, what they did was was incredible. It took them 40 years to get to this point. This this game was built in in 1989. That's 1989. That's like 20 years before he's born. So just go figure how long it's been, that big game has been around and nobody's gotten to that point. Well, hopefully it doesn't take 30 plus years to solve climate change as well. So what's next for the game? Is there going to be a change made to the code to allow for higher scores? So in back in those days, games were written in, in machine language. And so back when it was one machine with one program and that's all it ever did, there was no like guardrails for that. So we really don't have to do anything or we haven't had to do anything to guard against that because under natural progression of computer languages, just not going to happen again. But if, if anything, what I would do as a developer is I would plan for people to be able to go to those higher levels and make it really hard, but still really interesting. And you got to understand also that they knew what was going to happen at level 157 you know that, right? No. Because they somebody had AI that did that. So they knew at level 157, if you do a single, the program will crash mm-hmm. because they'd watch AI do that. That's not in and of itself a great achievement because it's expected. Mm-hmm. An AI can outlast, you know, an 8-bit computer, whatever. But for a human to do it, you know, you have to get past the dark levels, which were really hard to play. And then you have to have the, I don't know, the ability 
for hours using a new technique, the tapping technique or whatever. They had a, they had a word for it. I read on some gaming websites yeah, that the ultimate goal for master players is to avoid all the kill screens and push to level 255 where the game will reset back to base level. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I <laughs> I don't know if you can get past life level 157 without making a single. Now, maybe you could. And, uh, you know, this only doubles or triples or tetrises. Yeah. And then if you get past level 157, who knows what's going to happen? What's the next condition where it's going to crash? Again, you, you could use AI to figure out all the crash conditions and avoid them. But that would be another... I should put that out there as a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be cool to see. Yeah, cool to see. that would be cool. Cool. Hey, you know, $1,000 or $10,000 for anybody who can go up to level 255, you know. <laughs> That's a great idea. Anything else you want to say about this, this moment? You know, the fact that there's this much interest in a game that was created in 1984, 1984, you know, that's incredible. There's no one that has this level of interest after that many years. And I believe that Tetris is going to be the game that outlasts every other game. It's still going to be there. So it's the, the first real virtual sport. That's the way I look at it. So I'm looking forward to finding out who the world champions are. You know, Alexi asked this kid, do you play on any other platform? And he, his answer was, yes, I'm the world champion on Game Boy also. Wow. I was like, wow. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's amazing. And he's at 13, so he's got a long way to go. Thanks so much for talking story with me, Hank. Really appreciate your time today. All right. Aloha. That was Tetris Company President Hank Rogers talking to Dave Spears, Russell Subiono about what might come next after a 13-year-old Oklahoma boy became the first documented person to beat the video game Tetris. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we hear from the Yale Alley Cats, who are prowling around Oahu in advance of their free a cappella concert at Farrington High School this weekend. We'll have the details. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation segments on our website or at your favorite podcast site. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.